As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence. It is not suitable for all listeners. Please use discretion. Three and a half thousand years ago, a man knelt in the dirt. He was exhausted, battered, and bruised. His arms were stretched behind his back, his wrists were tied. He may have worn body armor or even jewelry, for this man was wealthy. He was a king. His name was Sekenenre. Sekenenre Ta, aka Sekenenre the Great, or Brave, was the king of southern Egypt. He ruled at Waset, Thebes, and he governed a territory that stretched north and south. Sekenenre Ta did not rule all of Egypt. The Nile Valley was divided. In fact, it was this division that brought Sekenenre to this moment. Kneeling in the dirt, the king of southern Egypt was facing his enemies. Sekenenre had gone to war against people in the north. Commonly known as the Hyksos, these northerners ruled a broad territory, from the Nile to the Delta to Sinai and possibly southern Canaan. The Hyksos were mighty, the Hyksos were powerful, the Hyksos were a formidable kingdom. Sekenenre attacked the Hyksos forces, leading his troops into battle. Unfortunately, the fight did not go well. The enemy captured Sekenenre. They bound his arms behind his back and took him into custody. This is how Sekenenre wound up on his knees in the dirt. The northern warriors surrounded the Egyptian king, and at a particular moment, one of them stepped forth. This could have been a general, or even the ruler of the Hexos kingdom. We do not know. What we do know is what this enemy did. As Sekenenre Ta knelt in the dirt, the Hexos warrior lifted an axe. A heavy bladed weapon, probably made of bronze, shone in the sunlight. The warrior swished the axe back and forth, testing its weight and balance. Then he raised it high, the blade glinted, and then flashed as it descended from above. The axe struck Sekenenre on the forehead. The blow was powerful. The axe punctured Sekenenre's skull and buried itself in his cranium. Naturally, the king's body slumped, and it is possible that he was already dead. His limbs collapsed, and he fell backwards into the dirt. Hypothetically, that could have been the end of it, but not quite. As Sekenenre fell, his enemies were just getting started. The king of Egypt, Sekenenre the Brave, died a violent death. Today, scientists can reconstruct what happened in his final moments. Hello everyone, 
Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a mini-episode detailing some new research on the death of Sekenen Reita. This episode was recorded in February 2021, when a new study appeared in the journal Frontiers in Medicine. Professor Sahar N. Salim and Dr. Zahi Hawass published an article titled Computed Tomography Study of the Mummy of King Sekenen Reita II. New Insights into His Violent Death. Basically, Egyptian scientists used CT scanning to analyze the mummy of Sekenenre and to unpack further details of his demise. Thanks to this study and other historical discussions, we can now reconstruct the passing of Sekenenre Ta and the events that brought him to that moment. You will find my sources on the podcast website. For now, sit back and enjoy the story if you can. A bronze axe struck Sekenen Reita. It crashed into his forehead, splitting his skull and killing him instantly. The king slumped backwards, his body coming to rest on its back. What happened next is a gruesome story. The king of southern Egypt was dead, but his suffering was not over. As the king's body collapsed, his enemies continued their attack. The warrior wielding an axe rained further blows on Sekenen Ray. His weapon left deep cuts and fractures on the skull. Then, another blow with a heavy blunt weapon smashed the king's nose. His eye collapsed, battered and broken. Then, further attacks hit him on the side of the face. The king's enemies laid a terrible punishment on his body. Blow after blow struck the man's head. Finally, another warrior stepped forward, holding a spear. This enemy jabbed down sharply. His spear pierced the side of Sekenenre's face, just below the left ear. The spear went so deep that it reached the king's foramen magnum, that circular cavity in the base of a human skull. In other words, this spear went right through to the centre of Sekenenre's head. A terrible attack and a gruesome wound. Sekenenre was certainly dead soon after the attack began. It is not clear what order the blows landed, but many of these strikes could be fatal individually. In other words, the enemy hit Sekenenre so violently that he probably died straight away. In hindsight, that seems like a mercy. No one should have to endure this kind of punishment. The mummy of Sekenenre Ta came to light in 1881. Buried in a royal cache at Luxor, or Thebes, the mummy lay in a coffin along with many others of his generation and his kingdom. The mummy of Sekenenre emerged from a cache alongside such figures as Ramesses II, Thutmose III, and Queen Amosa Nefertari. We will meet these people eventually. Basically, Sekenenre's mummy lay in famous and prestigious company. So he enjoyed a long legacy, posthumous recognition and respect. But you may be wondering, if Sekenenre died a prisoner, captive of the Hyksos, how did his body survive? It seems that following his execution, the body of Sekenenre Ta made its way back to the south. This could have happened in two ways. It is possible that after his death, the enemy left Sekenenre lying on the battlefield. 
Then, soldiers from the south might have recovered their king's body. They took it back home and prepared it for burial. Alternatively, the Hyksos might have sent the corpse back to his family. Why would they do this? Well, there are two explanations. Perhaps the Hyksos wanted to send a message, to show the southerners what would happen if they attacked. After all, killing a king, and killing him brutally, was a powerful statement. Sending the corpse home would teach their enemies, do not mess with us. Or, perhaps the Hyksos sent him back as a gesture. The northerners had killed Sekenenre, and probably many of his warriors. But leaving aside the violence, Sekenenre Ta was a king. He was anointed before the gods, and he ruled with their blessing. Perhaps the Hyksos wanted to acknowledge their enemy's status. They had executed Sekenenre, but they could still show respect. Perhaps they returned him to his family and his kingdom as a gesture. Either of these, or both, could be true. The Hyksos might have respected Sekenenre and given him honour, and at the same time, they probably understood that his body, battered and mutilated, would send a powerful message. So maybe the northerners gave Sekenenre back to show their respect and their might. Whatever the exact cause, Sekenenre's body was loaded onto a ship and taken upriver. The Egyptians sailed south with their valuable cargo. They went to the city of Waset, Thebes, where royal physicians could prepare the body for eternity. Priests and doctors would mummify Sekenenre. They would preserve his corpse to protect his spirit. The mummy of Sekenenre received a proper but interesting mummification. Firstly, the embalmers did the usual things. They cut an opening in his abdomen and removed the viscera from his gut. They replaced Sekenenre's organs with linen stuffed with resin. They removed his heart, but not his brain. CT scans show that the king's brain matter is still in his skull. Perhaps the wounds to his cranium were too great to allow for removal. Or perhaps taking the brain out was not standard procedure just yet. Several mummies from this period, and the early 18th dynasty, still have their brain matter, so it wasn't a universal thing by any means. Beyond the organ removal, the physicians also tried to preserve the body. Strangely, it seems that Sekenenre did not receive the traditional salt bath. Instead of lying him in natron and sand, the embalmers sprinkled the body with sawdust. A powdered, aromatic wood was used for his preservation. This gave Sekenenre's mummy a distinctive smell. When he first examined it in the early 1900s, physician Elliot Smith observed, quote, The king's body is a badly damaged skeleton, enclosed in an imperfect sheet of soft, moist, dark brown skin, which has a highly aromatic, spicy odour. End quote. So, the king's body has a distinctive, spicy scent. If you have ever wondered what a mummy smells like, here is an example. Anyway, Sekenen Ray died, his body was returned to Thebes, and he underwent mummification. Taking his corpse back to the south would have been a lengthy process. As a result, the king's body had already started to decompose by the time he was mummified. Rigor mortis had set in, and this meant that his limbs were getting stiff. So the embalmers had a problem. They could not stretch the mummy out and lie him on his back. That would be normal procedure. 
Most mummies lay flat or supine, as if they are sleeping. But Sakenenre's corpse was already stiff by the time the embalming began. As a result, the king lies in a slightly tortured pose. His arms are contracted, bent at the elbows, and his hands and wrists are in a deformed position. This suggests that he died with his arms tied at his back, and his body lay in that position for some time. The mummy of Sakenenre is in poor condition. The limbs, torso, and head are all dislocated, separate from one another. It seems that the physicians were unable to preserve this body to the highest standard. A lot of moisture remained, and this caused decomposition in the flesh. As a result, the king's muscles disintegrated, and his body fell apart. It is a minor miracle that it survives at all. There is more to say about the death of Sikinenreta, and in chapter 2 of this episode, we will cover some of the larger context. For now, it is time for a quick break. See you in a moment. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous reign of terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. In episodes 52 to 55, we have explored some aspects of the time in which Sakenen Ray lived. The Second Intermediate Period is a complicated part of Egyptian history. And in the years since I wrote those episodes, scholarship around this period has changed significantly. Most importantly, ongoing excavations in the north have revealed a great deal about life in the Hyksos Kingdom. As we round out this mini-episode, I want to touch on a little bit of the context for Sakenenre's death. Who killed him? What weapons did they use? And what does it all mean? King Sakenenre Ta met his death in a terrible, violent moment. Multiple weapons punished this man. His life ended in a horrific way. Today, we have a better understanding of the specific types of weapons that killed this man. In another part of their study, Professor Salim and Dr. Hawass touch on this aspect. Excavations in the north of Egypt have uncovered many artifacts from the Hexos kingdom. Specifically, archaeologists working at Avaris, modern Tel el-Daba, have uncovered the tools used by northern soldiers. Those weapons are now in the Cairo Museum, and they reveal similarities 
with the wounds that Sir Kenan Ray received. One weapon was an axe. It was bronze, and it had a long, narrow blade. This was probably the type of weapon that struck Sir Kenan Ray's forehead, face, and skull. The edge of this axe was straight, so it would have punched forcefully through his head. It is well made, the blade aligned smoothly with the handle. This gave it stability and made it easier to swing with accuracy. Also, a good balance helped the warrior to build force, so as he swung the weapon, the soldier could strike Sir Cannon Ray hard, exactly where he intended. Again, that might have been a mercy. With the right blow, the Egyptian king could have died straight away. His suffering might have been short. Other weapons recovered from the north include a spear. It has a triangular blade, about six centimetres long. In other words, this spear was long enough to punch through Sir Cannon Ray's skull and reach the core of his cranium. Sharp, precise, and effective. A simple but deadly weapon. Finally, there are swords or daggers, made of bronze with sharp blades about 21 to 28 centimetres long. These weapons correlate with wounds inflicted on the side of the head. Perhaps when the king's body slumped over, his enemies came close to stab him further. These weapons are simple, elegant, and probably quite effective. The items now kept in the Cairo Museum are probably not the specific weapons that killed Sir Kenan Ray, but they are items of that type. Multiple studies have compared Sir Kenan Ray's wounds with items discovered in the north and even in southern Canaan, and they seem to match. So at the very least, we know that the warriors who killed Sir Kenan Ray were carrying these types of weapons. It is important to remember, though, that we do not know who exactly was responsible for this act. Although we talk about the Hyksos Kingdom ruling the north of Egypt, not everyone in the Hyksos Kingdom was a foreigner. For one thing, many of the Hyksos themselves were born, grew up, and lived in Egypt their entire lives. For another, the cities that the Hyksos ruled, cities like Avaris, seem to have had cosmopolitan populations. Excavations at Avaris, led by Manfred Bietak and Irene Forstner-Müller, have revealed the variety of peoples who lived here. There is evidence for Hyksos and Canaanites, but also Cypriots, people from the island of Cyprus. There might even be evidence for Nubians, people from the area now called Sudan. Then there were the Egyptians. The Hyksos did not replace the Egyptians when they moved into the area, and many communities in that kingdom would have been majority Egyptian. So, ultimately, the Hyksos kingdom was a mixture of different peoples, and this probably went for the army as well. My point is that when Sakenen Ray went to war against the Hexos, he was not fighting a single ethnicity or community. Chances are the Hexos army was composed of many different types of people, and quite possibly there were many Egyptians in the Hexos ranks. So the death of Sakenen Ray Tao happened at the hands of individuals who are now unknown. We know the weapons that were used, and we know the broader political context, but the individuals who killed him remain anonymous. I make this point for a simple reason. The Second Intermediate Period, and the war against the Hyksos, 
has become a little bit of a myth, a story with larger political and cultural symbolism. There is a good reason for this, but when we are analysing the events of three and a half thousand years ago, we have to detach ourselves from that myth to look at things in their original context. My fundamental point is that the death of Sakenen Reita was a horrible event, one that we can empathise with, and which should not happen to any individual. At the same time, we should not use this event as a justification for hatreds or historical prejudices. The war between the Southerners and the Northerners was a lot more complicated than it seems 3,000 years later. The death of Sekenen Reita fits within a much larger picture. Three and a half thousand years ago, the king of southern Egypt, Sekenen Reita, met his end on a battlefield or in captivity. He received terrible attacks and blows from an enemy, attacks that ultimately ended his life. Hopefully, this kind of execution did not happen too often. If it did, well, that is human history. Sometimes it gets dark. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. This episode was recorded in February 2021. At some point, I will go back and rewrite the episodes that cover the Second Intermediate Period. The story is much bigger and more detailed than it was just a few years ago. So I will come back and update them one day. For now, thank you for listening. See you on the next episode. Oh, and one more thing. If you heard automated advertising at the start and end of this episode, I do apologize. My podcasting host, Acast, does not give me the ability to choose whether advertising appears on individual episodes. Under normal circumstances, I would choose not to have advertising on a story like this. Hopefully, any advertising has been unobtrusive at the very least. To round out this episode, we will have an extended piece of music. Hopefully, that will give a buffer.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.